On September 14, 2004, an FDA panel voted 18 to 5 to require manufacturers of all antidepressants to add black box warnings to their product labeling. A month later, the FDA adopted the panel's recommendations. The warning reads in part, Antidepressants increased the risk of suicidal thinking and behavior in short-term studies in children and adolescents with major depressive disorder and other psychiatric disorders. Anyone considering the use of an antidepressant in a child or adolescent must balance this risk with the clinical need. Patients who are started on therapy should be observed closely for clinical worsening, suicidality, or unusual changes in behavior. So, are antidepressants really dangerous? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Michael Carlton. Dr. Carlton is a practicing internist and addiction medicine specialist in Phoenix. He has detoxed over 30,000 patients. In addition to these duties, he is associate professor for the Maricopa Psychiatric Residency Training Program. Welcome, Dr. Carlton. You are not only an internist and an addiction specialist, but you're also a toxicology expert. So tell us uh, your perspective about the risks of using antidepressants. The risk really of antidepressants is twofold. Number one, when the FDA decided to put black box warnings on antidepressants, uh, the original issue was all about um, adolescents. One of the problems was is that there really have been very, very, very few studies that have looked at the use of antidepressants in children, adolescents, children or adolescents. Uh, the incidence of depression in childhood is only about 2 to 4%. By the time they're in early adolescence, it's about 8%. But later in adolescence, at up to um, uh, the teens and, and then young adulthood, it can be as high as 20%. But in that early population, the studies just hadn't been done uh, looking at that and looking at efficacy. The FDA was very concerned because there was a growing uh, market of, pay, of people writing prescriptions for, young, for children and adolescents when they weren't approved in that age group at all. Right. So, you know, thinking back, I was trained in the days uh, before SSRIs and all of the newer antidepressants. And, you know, the big plug for the newer ones was that they were much safer than the tricyclic antidepressants and the monoamine oxidase inhibitors that we had had in years before. Uh, is this issue something new to the SSRIs, or has this been possible all along? The risk of suicide uh, issues in anybody who has depression or any psychiatric illness is obviously higher than people who don't uh, suffer such illnesses. The risk with specifically with the SSRIs and the newer dual-action drugs uh, like Cymbalta or Effexor uh, is uh, different than that, though. Number one is if you could just simply compare them. As a toxicologist, if I say I have somebody who has an overdose of a tricyclic antidepressant or of trazodone, I am much more concerned about that patient and the likelihood that that patient may in fact die than if I find out that somebody's overdosed on something like Paxil or Prozac or Zoloft or Lexapro. Serotonin reuptake inhibitors in the setting of overdose tend to cause a lot less problems. There is far fewer deaths from overdoses with serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Uh, you don't see people needing to be intubated. You don't need to keep them in the ICUs nearly as long. In fact, usually by the time you get them out of the emergency room, the people are awake, they're alert, they're oriented. Um, they may be still somewhat sleepy, 
but they're ready to go on to the next stage of evaluation to try to figure out what's really happening with them as to why they may have tried to hurt themselves to begin with. Well, the black humor of a psychiatric resident was when Prozac came out that the only way to kill yourself with Prozac was to be run over by the delivery truck. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's bad, but that's what we used to say. Is that at all accurate? It really is. Uh, if people overdose on, on pure SSRIs like Prozac and like Lexapro, they can get pretty sleepy. They can become unconscious. They do not get respiratory depression or very infrequently get respiratory depression. Occasionally, there can be seizures that are seen, but the seizures are really very short, very limited, and that's really it. it, Again, it is just a matter of when people overdose on SSRIs, just really supportive care, and then once they wake up, trying to deal with the whole aftermath of what's going on with them as to why they would have taken such a drastic step. Right. So so let's get back to the suicidality question. Um, are antidepressants really dangerous in terms of causing people to behave with suicidal intent? Well, antidepressants clearly treat depression, and we know that people who have depression are more likely to try to go out and hurt themselves either uh, as a show of or as a real attempt to actually kill themselves. Antidepressants, particularly the serotonergic agents, can sometimes, however, be a little more activating. And the problem is that people will sometimes get a little bit more energy, and yet it hasn't quite kicked in in terms of the um, antidepressant effect. And so when they were depressed and they just have, have energy to do anything, they may have been thinking about it, but they were, just didn't have enough energy to get up and do it. Now the energy level starts to come back with some of these drugs before the antidepressant effect really kicks in, and now they have the energy to sometimes act on what they're thinking about or feeling about. So is there any group that's especially at risk for problems with antidepressants? This can certainly happen across any age range. What the FDA was very concerned about in terms of their black box warning were adolescents. And adolescents are already at higher risk for developing uh, suicidal ideations and suicidal behaviors. But remember that the other part of this is when they went back and looked at these studies, the FDA doesn't include only things like, I tried to hurt myself, I tried to kill myself, or a successful suicide. The FDA considers that anything that is of a suicidal nature to include things like just hurting myself. So I'm really angry about what's happening right now, and so I go up and punch a wall. That would be considered a gesture of suicidality, even though there was no true suicide intent in there. And so there's some of this is just trying to sort through those things as well. Well, and certainly if you treat teenagers, <laughs> that, that seems a gross overstatement of their intent. Oh, absolutely. Kind of like when you're treating alcoholics, and, and I get these calls and say, we have somebody who is suicidal, and really what they are is drunk, and they don't want to be like this, and it's the alcohol speaking. Well, many times with adolescents as well, it's just the emotion of the moment that's speaking. Remember that in adolescence, the frontal lobes are not completely mature. They haven't fully myelinated, and so their thinking, reasoning parts of their brain aren't online yet, whereas the entire emotional part of their brain is absolutely online and being influenced by this whole new range of hormones that are swinging through their body at just incredible speeds. There's a lot out there published by a British psychiatrist named David Healy, and he is quite militant in his opinions that antidepressants, especially the SSRIs and especially fluoxetine, kill people. What do you think about that? First of all, if you look at what the suicide rate was, um, both in terms of completion and in terms of people actually trying this, if you look at what it was in the late 70s before the introduction of Prozac and then subsequently the other SSRIs, and then you look at it now, the rates of suicide 
completion, the rates of suicide attempts in adolescence is dramatically gone down. Many people believe that that is simply because of the introduction of SSRIs. As we had medications that were available and that were very, very safe by and large, people became less or more and more comfortable with prescribing these things to younger and younger kids. Right, and certainly one of the things that was uh, distressing to us was the, I believe there were five or six boys on nortriptyline that died of cardiac events. Yes, absolutely. When you have children who are taking, or any adult who's taking a tricyclic antidepressant, or even for that matter, something like trazodone, you do have to look at their EKGs. There can be conduction problems. There can be prolongation of the QRS intervals. Trazodone, in addition to uh, the QRS problems, can also cause orthostatic hypotension. And so when you have kids who are getting up and moving down and moving around, they may be more likely to get lightheaded, get dizzy. If you have cyclic antidepressants that can interfere with their ability to sweat and you live where I do in Phoenix and the kids are outside playing and they can't sweat, they can quickly escalate problems to where they're into some kind of heat exhaustion or heat stroke. So cyclic antidepressants and the other antidepressants that we had prior to the introduction of SSRIs were very, very much more dangerous than the SSRIs that uh, came on board after Prozac. I'm really glad you mentioned trazodone. I think many physicians are misinformed that trazodone is incredibly safe with, you know, perhaps a very rare chance of priapism and no other problems. But clearly there are issues with trazodone. There are a number of issues. Priapism is one. And, and, and if you've ever had a patient who has priapism, just one patient, one man with priapism will give you uh, pause because when that patient comes back and they've had to have their penis uh, cut open to drain the blood out, they're not very happy. The men who are prescribing this, it makes us kind of cringe the thought about this. Right, and, and it does happen. You know, last year there was a successful malpractice suit against a psychiatrist because he prescribed trazodone without warning the patient about the risk of priapism. And unfortunately, the patient did get priapism, did have, I believe, surgical intervention. And of course, he successfully sued the physician. Another thing that we use, I mean, today we don't use trazodone very much for, for as an antidepressant for depression, but it's frequently prescribed for sleep. And when we're giving this, again, particularly to our elderly patients, thinking, well, we're using something that's not addictive, there are clearly problems with the benzodiazepine receptor agonist causing amnestic events and people getting up and now sleep driving and finding themselves in their front yard without clothes on sometimes. And so we think, oh, trazodone is a much safer alternative. Well, for my elderly patients, when they get up in the middle of the night and they get orthostatic hypotension, I'm very concerned about falls because we know that if they fall and break a hip, then they are at a high risk for death over the next year. Now, back to the antidepressants and suicide question. Has the fear of the black box warning that came out in 2004, has it affected prescribing patterns? Well, it's certainly affected prescribing patterns. The first thing that I, I will say is that historically, for most people, if you were thinking about putting, and particularly an adolescent, somebody who's 15, 16, 17, on an SSRI, again, like Prozac or Lexapro, parents were very, very willing to do it. What they were watching was this traumatic problem with their children, and they obviously wanted what was best. They wanted their children to start feeling better, to be able to get up, to move, to participate in family events, to participate in school events, to kind of get their life back. And many patients, particularly early on, if you remember the book, you know, Listening to Prozac and other kind of books, there were these, just these dramatic stories sometimes about how people would respond to these drugs. And if you're a parent and you have a child who's going through depression, that's clearly what you want. Now, on the other hand, you have parents who say, well, you can't put my child on that drug because my, parent, my kid's going to go out and kill themselves. And so we then have to sit down and have a long discussion with our, our parents 
who become more and more reluctant to take medications uh, despite the fact that they know what the alternatives are and that their kid has just not been doing well uh, without medicine. Any last words about antidepressants and, and toxicity? Well, actually, again, the big thing is that the FDA is, is looking at this and, and what they're really looking at, and a couple of companies are now starting to do more research in children and adolescents, and I think that's really where we need to go. The black box warning was really more about a lack of information than it was the actual information. Uh, when they looked at the data of looking at the SSRIs and their effectiveness in children, there just weren't enough randomized placebo-controlled trials that showed a big enough effect to say that these work. And if we are putting our kids potentially at risk without a known benefit, that becomes a problem. Aha, uh-huh, the old absence of evidence versus evidence of absence. Yes. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Michael Carlton. We have been discussing the real risks of antidepressants. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.